You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning, everyone. All right, let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Praise God. Uh, As you might tell, we are not in the book of John this morning. Uh, The Nickersons are in North Carolina right now. Rebecca's grandmother passed away recently, uh, so they are there uh, grieving, doing all of the, the family necessary things. And so uh, I'm preaching here this morning on a related subject to what we've been considering in the Gospel of John. You know, one of the inescapable themes of the first five verses of John 17 that we considered last week is the glory of God. And in five verses, we have the word glory repeated five times. It's a major emphasis on what uh, Jesus is praying. But the glory presented is also more narrowly focused. And what I mean is that the glory that is considered is the glory of the triune God in salvation. Jesus' prayer in those verses show us the glory of God and redemption, the mutual giving and receiving of glory between the Father and the Son. But it isn't just the Father and Son who give glory. In chapter 16, Jesus told us of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're told that He is sent by the Father and the Son, and He comes to comfort and to help us as Christians. He comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and in judgment. But the most important thing, the most significant thing that He tells us is that the Spirit comes to glorify the Son. I want us to notice how each person of the Trinity is fixated on the glory of the triune God. God's redemptive work is for the glory of the triune God. And so that's what we want to spend our time considering this morning. In in verse 3 of John 17, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So my goal this morning is to help us do that. I want us to know more of the Father, more of the Son, more of the Holy Spirit, even if it's just a small measure. And that's why I've selected this single verse in 2 Corinthians. Now, uh, this is the concluding verse of a 13-chapter book of the Bible. And so there is a lot of information that stands ahead of this verse And we don't have time to get into everything in the book, but we do need to understand a few important things contextually. Uh, 2 Corinthians contains several important theological themes and ideas for us. It portrays God the Father as the one who loves and who gives peace. It's the one who raised Jesus from the dead and who will also raise believers from the dead. Jesus Christ is the one who suffered who fulfilled God's promises, who was the proclaimed Lord, who manifested God's glory, and the one who in his incarnation became poor for believers so that we might become spiritually rich. And the book portrays the Holy Spirit as God and as the guarantee of a believer's salvation. It also presents the clearest and most concise summary of the substitutionary atonement of Christ anywhere in Scripture. And that's in chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So throughout this letter, what we have, among other things not mentioned, is the triune God working in salvation for his people. And Paul concludes this letter with a benediction. And that gets right to that. Now, you might ask, what is a benediction? Well, we conclude every Sunday gathering with reciting a biblical benediction. And a benediction is simply the invoking of a blessing. It is calling on God to act in goodness, faithfulness, and love for His people. 
And there are lots of these kinds of blessings throughout Scripture. Perhaps the most famous is known as the Aaronic Blessing in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. If you read Paul's letters, all of them contain benedictions. We might think of Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Or Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before his presence with great joy. Well, the benediction that we have here in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14 is special in that it is explicitly Trinitarian. So in this sense, it is the most complete benediction that Paul ever gave. It displays the glory of the triune God. And he's praying that the Corinthians will be blessed by Jesus' grace, the Father's love, and the Holy Spirit's fellowship. Each member of the Trinity is there. Now, this isn't a formally constructed or systematically constructed doctrine of the Trinity. It's simply an overflow of the, the beautiful glory of the gospel. You know, Paul could have gone to the resurrection, for example, and shown how each person of the, of the Trinity was involved in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But instead, he chose the best way to demonstrate to the Trinity, and that is through the work of redemption. So Paul cannot help but speak about God in triune terms after he considers and muses on the beauty and the truth of the gospel. So in other words, this benediction is a summary of the gospel and of the glory of the triune God. And so I want us today to marvel at this glory. That's what I want us to do, just to, to focus on the Lord. I want us to see him and I want us to enjoy him. And I believe that this verse will allow us to do that. Um, and as you might imagine, since we're dealing with a single verse as our main text, there's going to be a lot of cross-references. So anybody do sword drills back in the day? Sword drills? Great. This is a great morning to flex that, your ability to flip through the Bible and find those passages. If you have a phone, that's kind of cheating, but, you know, that'll work, I guess. And seeing as we've uh, been making our way through John's Gospel... Um, I'm going to try to ground a lot of these cross-references in uh, the Gospel of John. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we jump into the text. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were your enemies, and yet you chose to love us from eternity past. We're thankful for your mercy and grace. We're thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus who came and died for us. We're thankful for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who ever lives with us and helps us. Father, we're thankful that we are those who do not grieve as those who do not have hope, even as Joey and Rebecca now are away, grieving the loss of Rebecca's grandmother. We have hope. She is with you now. That is a blessed hope that we have. We can have joy in the midst of the tragedy of death and suffering, and that is to your glory and to your praise. And so we thank you for that this morning. Help us, Father, to be a, a people who are fixated on your glory, who seek to honor you in all that we do and want to delight in you regularly. Help me this morning to preach clearly, to present Christ, Father, and Holy Spirit clearly present no stumbling blocks of the gospel. Pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so the first thing that we want to consider is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The verse reads, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we're going to begin with the grace of Jesus. Now, now each of these words, the Lord Jesus Christ, are important uh, they're, they're pregnant with meaning. Each displays a glorious truth. You know, who is it that we are speaking of? Well, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. That's the very purpose for why the Son took on flesh. He came to save 
sinners. And this Jesus also has two titles given to him. He has Lord and he has Christ. This Jesus is Lord. And this means that, that he is Yahweh, the Yahweh who saves. He is the God of the universe. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And all authority belongs to him. And to him, all nations, all peoples of the earth will bow and confess him to be the one true Lord. And there is safety and security in his kingdom. And this Jesus is also Christ. And this word Christ means anointed one, which is the, the equivalent of that Hebrew word Messiah. He is the one from whom all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was promised to defeat sin. He was consecrated by God for this unique and divine purpose. And what is it that this Lord Jesus Christ possesses? It is grace. And when we think of grace, we can think of it in two ways. We can think of it as unmerited favor and acceptance. We can also think of it as God's sanctifying and empowering work in our lives through the Spirit. See, all that we have that we do not deserve is because of grace. And here grace is particularly ascribed to Jesus. Now this does not imply that grace only comes from Jesus. You know, earlier in this letter, Paul writes about the grace that comes from God the Father. He says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes the Bible attributes to one divine person what is true of the entire Godhead. And the reason this happens is to show the role or the work that each one does particularly in the act of redemption. And that's what we have playing out here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout Scripture, grace is ascribed to Jesus as his chief characteristic. We've seen this at the beginning of John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is because of the grace of Jesus that we have fellowship with God. It is because of the grace of Jesus that we see the glory of the triune God. It's because of the grace of Jesus that we have come to know the truth. Now consider also how many of Paul's benedictions are for the grace of Jesus to be present among the churches. I'm going to rattle these off. Galatians 6.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Philippians 4.23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 2 Timothy 4.22, the Lord be with your spirit, grace with you. Philemon 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Revelation 22.21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Friends, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, what we should think of is grace. We should think of grace. That's what we see all throughout the Scripture. Grace is what we are to receive from Him. Redemption comes to us by the grace of Christ. You know, what is one of the Reformation cries? Sola gratia. By grace alone. In grace, he died in our place. In grace, he has made salvation and all its joys and benefits a reality to us. Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation. We do nothing to earn forgiveness and mercy and love. It is entirely by Jesus' grace for us. Friends, do you realize that this is the ruin of any pride that you might have in your life? 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most humbling thing for us to receive. And it destroys any worldly and cheap glory of men. I love how Martin Luther speaks about this in his work, The Bondage of the Will. He writes, But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God but presumes that there is, or at least hopes and desires that there may be, some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. This is the grace of our God. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The solo gratia is not merely, it's not mostly grace alone. It's not that salvation comes partly from grace and partly from our works. You know, the Mormons believe this. Uh, Their scripture says, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That's a blasphemous lie from the pit of hell. And this makes salvation fundamentally a result of human effort. Dear friends, this is not the case. Jesus Christ has secured everything necessary for our salvation. Romans 5.2 Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Hebrews 10, 10 and 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And of course, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could go on and on and on. But salvation is a gift of God that he distributes to whom he wills. We earn nothing. We were his enemies. Yet Christ died for us to make us his friends. Christ died for us to give us eternal life. Christ died for us for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. From the beginning to the end, salvation belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ in grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So if you are here this morning and you have not come to Christ, I'm very glad that you are here this morning. If what I'm saying this morning is new to you or even if you have heard it before but you have not believed, I point you to Jesus Christ the only gracious Savior, the the founder and perfecter of our faith who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He died for sinners like you and for sinners like me upon the cross. And you must know that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. No one is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. God's wrath abides on sinners because we have all sinned against him. And the whole world is held accountable to God and every mouth is stopped. You cannot justify yourself before God. You must know this. And you must also know that there is only one Savior. And he died upon the cross, bearing the sins of all those who will turn to him and believe in him. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And the promise is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you have never turned to Jesus Christ, praise the Lord that you are here this morning. Turn to him. The scripture says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man and the unrighteous man in thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the good news. If you call out to God in faith, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Say to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friend, look to Jesus Christ this morning. He is the only hope that you have. He is the only hope that any of us have. Receive his grace as a free gift by faith. This grace is a glorious grace, isn't it? Pure grace that the infinite God would take on flesh to die for those who hate him. Pure grace that the Son emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have been saved by grace. How can we respond to such a great salvation? Well, the only possible reply is to fall on our knees before our gracious Lord and humble all. But the glory does not end there. There is more glory for us to enjoy. The grace of Jesus for us is rooted in something else that is glorious. And that's the love of the Father. That's what we see next. So back in our principal verse, we, we read, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So as with Jesus and the grace that we just considered, this does not imply that love only comes from the Father. Uh, earlier in the letter, Paul speaks about the love of Christ. And Paul here speaks of the Father's love because it is the chief characteristic of the Father toward us in redemption. In other words, it is the root cause of our redemption. John tells us this in his gospel. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the way that we have fellowship with the Father is by free, undeserved, and eternal love. Now, you might ask, you know, why do you say that, the love, that it's the love of the Father when this verse says love of God? It does not say Father, it says God. Well, that's because Paul's reference to God is to God the Father. Uh, this is common throughout the New Testament. Uh, even in the verse that I just read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There's a distinction there, Son and Father, the one who is giving. But there are others in 1 John Chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, Anyone who does not know, uh, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So do you see here how God is being used to refer to the Father? And we know this because in in verse 9, there's a distinction made between God and his son whom he sent. And notice how the love of the Father is tied explicitly to the grace of Jesus. There's also Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Here we see that this love of the Father was for us before even a drop of Christ's blood was shed for us. It is because of the eternal love of the Father that we were predestined for adoption through Christ. And did you see or hear that reason why in verse 6? It is to the praise of his glorious grace. It's for his glory. God's love for us, just as Jesus' grace for us, is for his glory. Romans 5, it says that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, this is the Father's love. It's made distinct from the Son who died. And it is this love that is the root of Jesus dying for us, even though we were sinners. The Father's love is the source from which all other Loves flow. See what Paul wrote in Titus 3. We considered that already this morning when we read that and prayed through that. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done in us by right in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, just to drill the point home, the name God here is used for the Father because Paul makes a distinction between the Holy Spirit and the Son. Paul points us to the love of the Father as the root cause for what made us justified by his grace and heirs of eternal life. So I hope you see how Paul's reference to God in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is a reference to the Father and his unique love for us. The Father has a true and eternal love for those who are in Christ. You know, just two weeks ago, we studied the end of John chapter 16. And remember what Jesus said in uh, verses 26 and 27. It says, In that day you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. Notice that Christ does not have to intercede and ask that the Father love you. That is the Father's disposition toward you entirely already. Love. It is abundantly given to us freely through Christ Therefore, we have no fears, no doubts that the Father loves us. But there's the problem, isn't it? We do. We do often doubt. We doubt that he loves us. And often the Father is seen as being full of wrath and anger against sin, which he absolutely is. And for those apart from Christ who remain in their sin, wrath abides. And it is a dreadful thing. But in the gospel, the Father is revealed to us as love. Yet even we who are in Christ can forget this glorious truth. We can become so crippled by our sin and by our fear. We can feel out of place in prayer. 
We come to, to fellowship with the saints and we feel no warmth in our hearts. We think that God is angry with us, that, that he is punishing us and that we could never please him. And so we become spiritually crippled. We don't draw near to him. We doubt his love. John Owen I was a Puritan preacher, and uh, he wrote a book that uh, everybody in this room should read. It's called Communion with God, so write that one down. It's worth reading. There's a lot of gold spun in this book. Here is one that I think is particularly helpful for us in this. He writes, Flesh and blood is apt to think hard thoughts of God, to think that he is always angry and incapable of being pleased with his sinful creatures, that it is not for them to draw near to him, and that there is nothing in the world more to be desired than never to come into his presence. Now there is nothing more grievous to the Lord, nothing that serves the purposes of Satan more than such thoughts as these. Satan rejoices when he can fill your heart with such hard thoughts of God. How easily Satan deceives us. Was it not his purpose from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God into our hearts? Assure yourself then that there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep our hearts filled with him as the eternal source of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water, and you will soon find its stream sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will not now be able to, even for a second, keep at any distance from him. The love of the Father, it is the balm to our anxious and troubled hearts. And I am entirely convinced that if you and I were consumed with the knowledge of the love that the Father has for us, we would not be afraid of anything. We wouldn't. We would be rock solid. We would not be inclined towards this sin or that idol. We would be supremely satisfied in the love that he has for us and it would genuinely and truly be enough. So friends, take the Father's love. It's ripe for the picking. He wants us to enjoy it. Take up his love, which is for you. We need to receive his love by faith. We need to believe that he truly does love us. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God. We know that we have access to the Father's love because of Christ. You know, no one comes to the Father except through me, he said in John 14. Christ came to reveal the Father. He leads us to the Father who is love. So we have access to him. We behold his glory. We receive his love for us. And this all comes by faith. And as we have access to God, we really truly do come to understand what it means for God to be love. And that he has loved us from eternity. We find that all reason for God to be angry with us and to treat us as his enemies has been taken away by the grace of Christ. We find that we have true rest in the assurance of God's love and the impossibility, the impossibility of ever being separated from that love. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a glorious hope? So our response, receive God's love and love God back. Now we love God, which is the summary of the first table of the law, Jesus tells us. And this law, we should note, the law that was given to Israel, do you realize that that law was given after love? It was given after grace. It was given after mercy. The law of God is a good thing, friends. It's not a burden. 
It's a way for us to actually come and know and experience the love of God richly in our lives. But as long as you and I see the Father as harsh, as condemning, our hearts are going to be filled with fear and dread when we think of Him. You won't approach Him. You won't think of Him as you ought, and therefore you're not going to glorify Him as you were made to do. But when you see the Father as a loving Father, your heart will be filled with love for Him. Again, this is the balm for your anxious soul. We need to remind ourselves of His love. This is what David does several times throughout the Psalms. Psalm 116, verse 7, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, or shown loving kindness. Psalm 73, 25, Whom I have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Psalm 63, 1 and 3. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Our rest is found in the love that God has shown us. There is no greater possession, nothing more desirable than God and his love. Our souls thirst for God and we are satisfied in his love, which we are told is better than life itself. The Father truly is the God of love and peace. And he would have us know this and delight in this. And this love becomes known to us. We experience this love through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what we'll turn to next. So looking back at 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now as with the grace that comes from Jesus and the love that comes from the Father, this does not imply that fellowship only comes from the Holy Spirit. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says that we are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul here speaks of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit because it is the chief characteristic of the Holy Spirit toward us in redemption. In other words, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is mentioned with the grace of Jesus and the love of the Father because it is by the Spirit that we have fellowship with the triune God. We have fellowship with Christ in grace because of the Spirit. And we have fellowship with the Father in love because of the Spirit. Remember back in John 14, where Jesus begins to speak explicitly about the Holy Spirit. And starting in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And this is why Jesus goes on to say just a few verses later that the Father and Son will come and make their home with the one who loves and obeys Jesus. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is more advantageous for us because through him we have true communion with the triune God. In these verses in John, we find that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit means that we belong to the family of God. Now remember how the Gospel of John began. He writes in chapter 1, starting in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this birth comes through the Holy Spirit as Jesus taught in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. We also see this in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So Paul here calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. Through fellowship with him, through the indwelling of the Spirit, our status as children of God is confirmed. Our identity is sure, and we can confidently cry out, Abba, Father, for God is truly our Father. Earlier in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul writes, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what this means is that the Holy Spirit persuades us that God loves us. What a mercy. What a kindness of God to do that. This ought to give us great joy and comfort because on our own, we're given to fear. We're given over to doubt. But the Holy Spirit's presence in our life means that that love of the Father that we just considered, we become confident about. We know it's true in our lives. And this means that we can face every kind of tribulation. He enables us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He confirms our status as recipients of Jesus' grace and the Father's love. He assures us that we are God's children. We need this affirmation because we are often weak. We sin and our consciences feel the weight of God's law. And instead of seeing ourselves as children of God, we are tempted to see ourselves as children of wrath. Again, the devil delights to accuse us in this way. But the spirit in us produces evidence to the contrary. He comforts our hearts with all the promises of God. And they truly do comfort us only in the spirit You know, that is, after all, his title. He's the paraclete. We considered that earlier in John's gospel. That means that he is the comforter. And the reality is that the promises of God, they're really only a comfort to those who are children of God. Those who are not in God aren't comforted by the promises of God. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom nor taught by the Spirit, I'm sorry, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, spiritual truths come to us by the spirit of truth. And we need him to do this work. We can't manufacture this. Uh, To quote John Owen again, it is stupid to rely on our natural abilities to remember the promises of God. If he brings to mind the promises of Christ for our comfort, neither Satan nor man, neither sin nor the world, nor even death itself shall take away our comfort. The Spirit does this work in us and it brings us true comfort. He is the one who assures us of the glorious truths of God, especially that we belong to Him in love. Our fellowship of the Holy Spirit is also the assurance that we are forever in God. And twice in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us this. In chapter 1, he says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In uh, chapter 5, verse 5, he says, He who has prepared for us this very thing, God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit confirms and is the promise from the Father that we will indeed receive life in heavenly dwelling and that we are truly established in Christ. Twice also in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about us being sealed by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, 
Starting in verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the gospel of truth, the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then in chapter 4, verse 30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit is God's seal of love and approval. And we are sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit is the guarantee of final redemption. So our fellowship with Him is the assurance that every one of God's promises is going to be uh, fulfilled. And to what end? It was to the praise of His glory. We enjoy eternal fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And it's important to notice, as Paul mentioned in Ephesians 4, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, even as we might grieve a a close friend or a family member. What Paul speaks of here is living in sin. We have been sealed by the Spirit for a glorious hope. We ought not live in the manner of the old life of sin. We ought to live in the manner of the new life in Christ. We give no opportunity to the devil. We put away falsehood. We let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. We allow no bitterness in our hearts, and we do not practice any sort of sexual immorality. That's Paul's point from half of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5 of Ephesians. These things grieve the Spirit instead We need to walk in true fellowship with him in accordance with the hope that we have in him. And the promise is, friends, that he will help us. And so we really do need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would despise all our sufferings and all of our trials. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would be hardened by our sin. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would become arrogant and proud. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would be unable to obey God. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would produce no godliness in our lives. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would have no wisdom in this life. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would not receive the grace of Jesus. Without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we would not experience the love of the Father. We need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, To quote Owen one last time, in a word, in all that concerns us in this life, and in all our expectation of another life, we will always stand in need of the comfort and strength of the Holy Spirit. What a kindness of God to give us his spirit. How glorious is he that he would show us such love and grace toward us. Friends, our God is a glorious God, isn't he? The triune nature of God is a glorious reality for us to enjoy. The Lord Jesus Christ and the magnitude of his gracious death for us the Father and His infinite and eternal love for us, the Spirit and the riches of His fellowship with us, and the beauty of the interlocking work of each is staggering. The Trinitarian redemption that God has done, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. There are things about God and his works that are beyond our ability to grasp. But that's okay. We don't need to fully understand everything that we believe. But we must search them out. We must search them out. We want to dive down to the depths of the ocean of the glory of God. We want to take in every sight. We want to admire every wonderful thing We want to be down there as long as we can, as deep as we can go until the crushing pressure and the weight of the ocean of the glory of God is too much for us to bear. And then we've got to come up for air. We pause, we reflect, we take in the air that we need. And then we do it all over again. 
That's the Christian life. That's what we want to be doing. We want to live and delight in the glory of the triune God. Let's pray. merciful Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us, an eternal love that depended not on us, but on your goodness and on your mercy, your will, your choice. We're thankful that this is an eternal love that you have for us and that you poured out to us richly through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who in grace died for us. We're thankful, Father, that you rose him from the grave, that he has conquered sin and death, that he has ascended to your right hand, that he now intercedes for us in grace and mercy. We're thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, whom you and the Son have sent for us, and that he confirms our status as your children dearly loved. Father, we beg that the Spirit of God in us would confirm us more and more in that reality. That our whole lives would be swallowed up in your glory. We'd be richly satisfied in you. Help us to be a people who long for your glory, who long to see it and taste it, and who long for that glorious day when our Lord will return. We will undo every curse of sin and we will behold your glory unending for all eternity. Help our hope be fixed on this, Father. We pray all these in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.